Welcome to People Doing Physics, the podcast that explores the personal side of physics of the Cavendish Lab here at the University of Cambridge. I'm Simone Sagere Barker, a PhD student studying experimental physics. And I'm Jacob Butler from the Outreach Office. We're joined today by a familiar voice, Dr. Paolo Molignini. Paolo will be leaving us soon, so this month we thought we'd give a little insight into one of the people behind the podcast. Paolo is a postdoctoral research associate in the Theory of Condensed Matter group here at the Cavendish, bringing together elements of non-equilibrium physics, topological phases of matter, quantum optics and quantum simulation. Born in Switzerland, he gained his bachelor's, master's and PhD in physics from ETH Zurich, before taking up a postdoctoral position in Quantum Systems Engineering Group at Oxford. His research involves developing several software applications for modelling quantum systems, including Unicorn, which applies machine learning to model systems of ultra-cold atoms. On top of this, Paolo has found time to contribute to several outreach programmes, producing a series of videos on superconductors during his time at Oxford, creating a doodle video on topological insulators for the first online Cambridge Science Festival, as well as hosting a monthly podcast looking at the people behind physics research Mm -hmm. taking place at the Cavendish. Today we'll talk about his experiences growing up in southern Switzerland, his path from civil engineer to physicist, the work he does as a theoretician working in an experimental laboratory, and where this will take him next. Stay with us. So, Paolo, our listeners have heard your voice for many episodes, but unless they've been Googling you, they have no idea who you are. Could you tell us a bit about your current role here at the Cavendish and the kind of physics that you do? Uh, yeah, thank you very much for having me. Um, it's a bit uh, interesting <laughs> to be on the other side of the microphone for <laughs> once. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'm a postdoctoral researcher here uh, at TCM, the Theory of Condensed Matter at the Cavendish, for the next three days, because then I'll be moving to Sweden uh, for another position. Um, I've been working here for the past two years. Uh, I've been working mainly on, um, maybe we'll discuss it later, topological phases of matter out of equilibrium or finite temperature. Um, That and also continuing certain projects that I've started when I was at Oxford, also collaborating with Zurich still, ETH Zurich, uh, still on topological phases of matter, uh, but also on uh, ultra-cold quantum simulators. So could you tell us a bit more about these topological um, materials that you're investigating? Yeah, so a topological material is um, a material that has certain very exciting properties that stem from its ground state wave function, so the lowest energy state being degenerate, and that leads to um, very interesting phenomena uh, at the quantum scale, for instance, what we call topological insulators are uh, materials that are insulators, as the name says, in the bulk. So they don't conduct electricity. They don't conduct electricity, exactly. But uh, because of the different topology of their wave function... So the different geometry. Different, yeah, mm-hmm. topology. You can think of different ways of the how the wave function twists and turns. You know, okay. There's like different knots in the wave mm-hmm. function. Uh, that allows the, the material in, in a finite size sample to have conducting uh, channels along the edges. Mm. So you have an insulating material 
but along the edges there is currents that can propagate. So naturally that could lead to very interesting technologies where you save a lot of energy because there is no dissipation in the bulk because there is no conductivity there mm -hmm. and you only conduct along along the edges. Okay. So it's like having uh, a highway of electrons only yes, on, on the surface. Oh, yeah. And it's interesting that you work on, on this now because originally growing up, your parents wanted you to be a doctor, right? So, but you ended up being kind of a different type of doctor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what I, was still, your... I still managed to make them happy. Yeah. I'm still a doctor, but it's a different kind. <laughs> but what was your experience of science like growing up? Was it always something that drew you in? Were you always interested in physics? Or... I was always interested in science in general. Uh, I was a very curious kid. Uh, and I was very fortunate because... Uh, growing up, I had a lot of opportunities to explore different things. Mm -hmm. Also, my artistic side, I, I play the piano, I paint. Um, I, I did lots of different sports growing up. I did tennis, uh, soccer, I did um, horseback riding, wow. and I did martial arts. So I, I was, was there something very... you didn't do? <laughs> <laughs> That's also a problem. I'm kind of like a, a renaissance man. I have too many interests, so it's very mm -hmm. hard for me to narrow it down to something. But science was always part of... Um, one of my my biggest interests and um, so growing up as a kid I used to watch a program called Super Quark uh, on the Italian television because I come from the Italian speaking part of Switzerland mm -hmm. uh, where um, everyday um, science was was shown in a very kind of intuitive way and um, and also cutting-edge research was explained in a very simplified way so I was very fascinated by trying to understand uh, phenomena like you know superconductivity or black holes or exciting. supernovae yeah, yeah. <laughs> or also uh, and therefore also the interest in, in becoming a, a medical doctor uh, the human body height functions mm -hmm. uh, all the different organs and all the different chemicals it was very fascinating to me so I grew up in that kind of environment stimulated by those programs and so then when it came time to choose what you're gonna study at university were you did you decide, okay, let's do, let's do this. Let's do physics. I don't uh, want to be a doctor. <laughs> I had a lot of back and forth. Um, so like you said, uh, at first I wanted to become a medical doctor, mm -hmm. uh, partially pushed by my parents, perhaps. Uh, but then I realized at the end of uh, high school, um, I took one of those entry, entry tests for, for medicine. And I realized they're kind of weird. Uh, <laughs> for instance, there was a part of the test where you have to, there is like a text, like an A4 text with only M's and N's. Mm -hmm. And you have to cross within like 30 seconds. You have to time yourself. You have to cross all the N's that came before an M. So it was like an attention. And like an attention, yeah. yeah. I guess those tests are meant to test your skills, such as, uh, uh, you know, the ability to focus, the ability to work under pressure. Mm -hmm. There was another one where you had like a cube and then there was like some sort of like metallic wire inside, like coil. And then there was a picture of dots and then they rotated the cube and then mm -hmm. it took another picture. Then you have to say uh, in which direction the cube was rotated. Right. So it was, I guess, to test like your spatial abstraction skills. Mm -hmm. But they thought when I did the test to me, it's, not, if it, it's looked and it sounded more like... Um, like one of these IQ tests, I didn't hmm. really see like the, the yeah, impact. Where's the biology? That have. Yeah, exactly. Where's yeah. the biology? Where's the medicine? Mm -hmm. So what happened was that uh, I decided to then go a different uh, different route. I started civil engineering. Also, that was kind of 
not really pushed by my parents, but my, my dad has an elevator company and they said, oh, you know, you could use an engineer, a civil engineer <laughs> in, in, in the family because you have to sign things when you, uh, when you want to install elevators or it has to be oh, an architect or a civil mm -hmm. engineer involved. So I thought, yeah, why not? You know, it's mathematical. I like that. So I did the first year uh, and I realized that's, I want something more mathematical. <laughs> I want something more. And I always wanted to do physics uh, growing up. I mean, in the back of my mind, but I always thought, you know, physics is really hard. I'm not smart enough for that. Let's just go for something, quote unquote, simpler mm -hmm. in terms of the math. Um, but then I realized I had good grades for, for my first year of civil engineering. So I said, you know, let's, let's try it. Let's try it. Switch to physics. And then the first year was hard. <laughs> <laughs> it was really hard. It, it was, it's funny because some of the courses were the same. So it was analysis, algebra, uh, linear algebra. Those courses on paper were the same, but the topics were dealt much more in depth. Mm -hmm. And there was m more like a theoretical component, like prove this theorem. And so it was less calculation and more really the theory behind it. So yeah, I struggled at first. Uh, I even failed my third semester. Um, it was funny, I failed because I, um, I arrived at the exam, it was, I remember, physics three exam. And, uh, you know, that was Switzerland. Everybody's very punctual in Switzerland. So everybody was there early. So they just started the exam early because <laughs> everybody but me was already there. So um, I arrived and everybody started already. So I thought, oh my God, I have to start. I, I, have, I have no time to waste. So I didn't even read the first page. Right. I just started solving one exercise after the other. And, and then I realized when I, I, I went back to see the exam that I, I read the first page and it says, you know, this exam is composed of three, three sections. Uh, do one exercise of the first section, one exercise of the second and three of the third. So, of course, doing them just, you know, in a sequence, I didn't get I didn't have enough time to do the, the last part. Right. Yeah, of course. And then it didn't count. Done. So but then, you know. I, I learned from my mistakes. Read uh, the instructions. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Read the instructions of your of your exams. Um, I did two semesters in, in one the next year and I caught up. And then I got my bachelor. I got into a master's program. And then my grades kept getting better and better. I guess I, guess I kind of learned uh, the way to study physics. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, also, in the master's, the exams were more oral. Than, than written, so I guess I'm I'm more good talented with my voice than <laughs> with my writing. Our listeners know you're good at talking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, it got better and better. So um, I graduated with honors, and um, I decided let's do a PhD, right? <laughs> so I think I can do this. So I continued with the PhD at ETH Zurich. And how did you end up in the current branch of physics then? Was uh, theoretical condensed matter physics something that inspired you from the off? Or is it something you came across later on? No, originally I wanted to do astrophysics. Um, also partially inspired by my, um, you know, when I was a kid looking at all these like uh, programs uh, showing like the depth of space and <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, supernova, black holes, things like that. But then I took a course in astrophysics in my bachelor's and uh, or my master's and I remember. But I thought this is not really what I want to do because astrophysics is extremely fascinating. We had an astrophysics uh, guest uh, on our show <clears throat> and it, it's very fascinating. They do extremely interesting stuff, but the way they operate, it's really, you have to know a lot about different things and really patch them together in a very clever and intuitive way. And it didn't necessarily have that intuition. 
Mm -hmm. I wanted to do something more kind of linear where it can really start from like, you know, uh, the basic concepts and build on top of that. Mm -hmm. yeah, especially doing... when you're learning about it in undergrad, like you don't necessarily know all the different aspects of physics yet that exactly. then are yeah. going to explain what you're seeing in this black hole or whatever. Absolutely. So, it was more like yeah. phenomenological and I wanted mm -hmm. to do like build a theory from, from the I'm ground sure. up. I see. Um, so I gravitated naturally towards condensed matter physics mm -hmm. um, because we could really kind of structure things from like microscopic theory yeah. and then go from there. Um, and then when I was in my final year of uh, master's, I had to do my master's thesis. I, I did it on superconductivity because I thought it's fascinating and it's uh, condensed matter. Um, but then when it was time to uh, do a PhD, I um, I went to see a talk by, uh, I don't remember exactly who was the person giving it, if it was the main author or the group leader, but it's a, um, a group in uh, um, Copenhagen uh, where um, they used semiconductor nanowired coupled to superconductors to engineer topological superconductors, uh, which can have um, Majorana, what are called Majorana end modes, which are basically the condensed matter realization of Majorana uh, particles, which have not been detected so far in particle physics. They're supposed to be their own antiparticle. There is some debate whether uh, neutrinos might be Majorana mm -hmm. particles, but it's not really clear. And I, I thought it's, I was extremely fascinated by the fact that you can create in a lab, in a concrete realization with materials, particles, I mean, affected particles that have mm -hmm. not even been discovered in, in nature mm -hmm. yet. Mm -hmm. So I was really drawn to, to that idea and then I when it came to to doing a PhD I, I switched slightly gears and, and moved towards that field. And you were never tempted to join like a, a lab to create these materials yourself <clears throat> or were you always like nope I want to be behind the computer somebody yeah. else can be doing the experiment? Um, I had a couple of courses uh, compulsory courses at Bachelor where you have to sit in the lab and do run experiments mm -hmm. and I was never really good at that. <laughs> Uh, it seemed like everything I touched somehow break down. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I knew I was conscious that it wasn't my forte. So I was always more on the theoretical side or computational. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then you decided, okay, I'm going to do a PhD. I'm going to work on superconductors. How was the experience of finding you know, a role that you could have in a lab, finding that PhD position? Because I remember that you said that you had some issues with the funding that um, mm -hmm. You were source, had to source it yourself. Yeah, I had to be very resourceful because um, my the professor I did my master thesis with uh, was happy with my work, but he didn't have any funding for a PhD. Mm -hmm. So uh, I asked around, and nobody seemed to have any funding. So what uh, I did, I came out with my own funding, in a way. Um, I got to know uh, a, I would say. Um, a mentor who uh, came, then my friend, uh, who was very interested in financing projects at uh, mm -hmm. higher level education, uh, mm -hmm. higher education level. And um, he had already financed a couple of projects at ETH, so I got to talk to him and explain what I wanted to do and kind of convince him that, you know, that was that what my ideas were something worth financing and he mm -hmm. was so generous to uh, finance that project mm -hmm. and I'm very grateful to him uh, unfortunately he passed uh, uh, last year so that's uh, it's very sad but I'll be forever grateful to him his name is Julio Anderhegen. Um 
for for believing in me and believing in in my in my potential and allowing me to develop further mm -hmm. and do this PhD. Were the other projects that he had funded at ETH also in physics? Or? Uh, no, I think it wasn't the engineering department mm -hmm. one. Um, I think one had to do with some computation, uh, like high performance computation. I don't mm -hmm. remember the details, but he had financed several different ones. Um, so I, of course I had to convince him a mm -hmm. bit, but uh, he was very knowledgeable actually in the world of physics. So it wasn't, I, I, it was easy in a sense because I could talk uh, about physics in a way that I would do with another colleague. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have to kind of simplify it too much. So it could really kind of perceive the details and understand the details of the project. So that was uh, that was uh, good. And of course, I was very lucky to to meet yeah. him mm -hmm. yeah. and cross paths. Yeah, <laughs> luck plays an extremely important role in life, and people don't say that enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so did uh, Julia have a background in physics, or was he just a sort of interested uh, interested third um, party? You mean Julio Andreken? Andreken, uh, yeah. yes. Uh, he did not. He studied, I think, engineering, um, mechanical engineering, but then he switched. He had a very turbulent education, and then he ended up um, working in an investment banking uh, firm, and that's how he made his fortune. Um, but he he was very interesting in phys very interested in physics, uh, especially in the very hard questions of physics. So, why is the speed of light constant? Or, uh, you know, what is the fate of the universe? These very <laughs> fundamental questions. And I, I tried to convince him, you know, about the utility of superconductors and that uh, we might have a room temperature superconductor one day and that my research could, you know, have be a little piece of the puzzle to, <laughs> to lead to that. Uh, and yeah, that's, uh, it was enough for him to, to, to finance my, my research. So now we'll take a break from the interview to discuss a recent paper that our guest and co-host, Paolo Molinini, uh, wrote while working here at the Cavendish, and this will be our news section of the day. So we might not realize it, but we encounter phase transition practically every day in our lives. When we boil water to cook pasta or let ice cubes melt in our drinks, a phase transition is taking place. Water changes phase from liquid to gas, from solid to liquid, uh, and so on. And matter can appear in many more different phases, some of which have an inherently quantum origin, such as superfluids or ferromagnets. And while some of the classical phase transitions have been known for centuries, in recent years we have started to discover new exciting kinds of phase transitions at the quantum level, which could soon be harnessed for incredible new technologies. Indeed, topological phase transitions, discovered in the 80s, are among the most famous examples because they require a radically different mathematical approach to describe them. Before their discovery, physicists thought that all phase transitions could be described by Landau theory, which relies on symmetry breaking and local order parameters. Across a Landau-type phase transition, the symmetry of the system is reduced, or better said, spontaneously broken, when going from the disordered to the ordered configuration. Exactly. So to give an example, water in its liquid phase is translationally invariant, so you move all the molecules by any amount in any direction and the liquid will still overall look the same. But when water freezes, the continuous translational symmetry of the liquid is broken because the molecules solidify in a crystalline structure. So only shifts by the lattice constant in a certain direction will preserve the aspect of the solid. And at the same time, there's a local quantity called the order parameter which describes the macroscopic changes in the properties of the system. For the liquid-solid phase transitions, the, that quantity is the density, 
which measures the degree of freezing or melting. Topological matter, on the other hand, relies neither on local order parameters nor on symmetry breaking. Instead, it's described by quantities called topological invariants, which measure the topology of the ground state. In very simple terms, the ground state, wave function, can be regarded as a geometric object. The topological invariant effectively counts the number of twists and turns occurring in the ground state. Different numbers of twists and turns, i.e. different topologies, correspond to different ground state phases, which manifest also microscopically with different properties. The most famous being the existence of edge states that can carry electrical charges in perfectly quantized units and could be the base for future technologies such as spintronics and quantum computing. So historically speaking, topological phases and phase transitions have been observed in experiments conducted at very, very low temperatures, so like as low as to turn helium into a liquid, where quantum effects dominate. Not surprisingly then, the theory of topological phase transitions was developed for effectively zero temperature systems. Today, the properties of such systems are relatively well understood. For instance, people have compiled a periodic table of topological insulators and superconductors by looking at how they behave in different dimensions and under different symmetries. However, we're used to thinking of temperature as one of the fundamental drivers of phase transitions. And this connection is so deep that it even defines our scale of temperature, which, you know, zero Celsius denotes the point at which water freezes and 100 Celsius the point at which boils. Therefore, scholars are starting to think about how to include temperature in the description of topological phases and phase transitions. A major obstacle is in the definition of topological invariants themselves. So at zero temperature, the quantum state is pure and topological invariants can be derived from the ground state expectation values. And as soon as the temperature is turned on, however, the thermal fluctuations turn the pure quantum state into a statistical mixture or mixed state. Any topological invariant that aims at describing non-zero temperature topological phases must then be reformulated directly from mixed states. And here comes today's guest into play. Uh, Paolo, you recently wrote a paper addressing the question of extending topological invariants to finite temperature. Can you, can you tell us a bit more about this study? Gladly. So we looked at the behavior of a prototypical one-dimensional topological insulator uh, called the Sue-Schrieffer-Higer, or SSH chain in short, in contact with two particle and energy bats. So our goal was to explore concepts of topological invariants in an open system where uh, the temperature can change due to the interactions with these bats. The SSH chain consists of a sequence of sites coupled to each other via alternating bonds, um, along which particles can hop with different amplitudes. And at zero temperature, the topology of the system can be described by an invariant called the Zach phase, which is uh, intimately related to the ground state charge polarization. That's not really an important detail. But in its topological trivial phase, the SSH chain behaves as a normal insulator. Um, in the topological phase, instead, the chain holds zero energy particles localized at, at its ends, and the charge polarization is non-zero. Uh, previous studies already suggested how to construct a topological invariant for the case of non-zero temperature by extending the form of the charge polarization to obtain a quantity known as ensemble geometric phase, or EGP in short. So the topological quantization was then studied through the winding of this EGP under some uh, cyclic variation of external parameters. Uh, but in all cases, the corresponding topological phase transitions were found to occur at infinite temperature and were thus more of a mathematical quirk, if you want. So can you tell us what's new in this upcoming paper? So in our present study, we employ a more general framework for open quantum systems um, known as the Redfield master equation, which allows us to define thermal baths of both non-zero temperature and tunable chemical potentials. We then explore the full nature of mixed-state topology for a combination of unitary quantum dynamics and local Markovian, that means memoryless dissipation. Um, with this framework, we introduce two new aspects. 
First, uh, a new kind of topological phase transition in the EGP winding can occur at finite temperature uh, and for a correlated non-equilibrium steady state. This transition is um, different because the quantization jumps between two non-zero inequivalent values. And second, we proved that uh, the EGP itself can become quantized at equilibrium when key symmetries are present, um, such as uh, um, chiral symmetry in the case of the SSH chain. And by tuning the values of the hoppings, it is possible to generate a topological phase transition be between these two quantized values at any temperature. So could you make an insulator topological by changing the temperature? In a sense, yes. Uh, so our results strengthen the connection between the EGP behavior in open systems and the known theory of topological transitions in closed systems. Also, they showed that temperature, uh, which we long thought to be mainly a detrimental factor to topological systems, can not only be compatible with them, but also induce topological phase transitions. So thank you for these explanations, Paolo. We'll put a link to the preprint in the show notes if you want to know more about this study. And so now back to our uh, more general interview. So now we've covered some of the specifics of what you're up to. Uh, can you tell us a bit about how you perceive research as a whole, as someone who not only works on many aspects of physics theoretically, but also as a host on this podcast? Your choice in your career, as you mentioned earlier, we're always in diversifying or being a renaissance man, as you put it, or a jack of all trades, if you want a less flattering phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Was this a strategic calculated choice or just more of an organic approach? Um, so you just opened Pandora's box. Uh, <laughs> It's a very uh, interesting question. It's a very complicated one. Let's break it down. So um, research today, I, I'm sorry to say it has a lot of problems. Um, the main one, I would say, the one that always kind of sticks with me is the fact, the way that publishing operates. Um, so, so publishers, like the, the big journals that everybody knows about, like Nature, uh, uh, Cell, uh, Science, the very big ones, uh, they're basically, the publishing there is like the de facto currency for succeeding in academia. So unless you publish a big paper there, your chances to moving forward as, a, you know, climb the ladder, quote unquote, are, are slim. But th the problem is that how the way they operate they um, so of course to publish there you need to pay, so you write your own paper. Imagine you do your own research. You know it's funded. Uh, everything is door, You have intellectual property that still you know you retain that. That doesn't matter uh, in terms of like publishing. You're still owner of that, but you're putting a lot of effort in that. And then you have to pay to put your results in a paper. And not only that, people who want to read your results need to pay to read it. And on top of that, there is also a review process that one has to do because, you know, people have to make sure that what you're writing is correct. So there is like reviewers and so on. But then these, these journals, and I guess basically any journal, gets free labor from <laughs> the referees. They are not paid. Mm. So then they're basically operating this like triple scam of getting money from the people <laughs> who want to publish, getting money from people who want to read, and get money in form of free labor from referees. So I think this system is fundamentally broken and we should find a way to solve that. 
I mean, now this is this is in biology, but I remember during COVID, a lot of uh, a lot of um, papers, a lot of journals, sorry, started releasing papers for free, even you know ones that they would historically have had behind paywalls. Yeah. Do you think has that resulted in a bit of a cultural change, or is this just a sort I of see, quirk of history? I see there is some changes. So there has been a slight shift towards trying to be more open access. There are some journals that allow open access, but you still have to pay the fees to publish in open access. So it's only part of of the problem that has been not even solved, but addressed. Mm. There are some papers now that they're removing the reject, accept criterion based on referees. There are other journals that um, are making referees mm. uh, double blind. So because the referees can see who you are as an author, but you cannot mm. see who the referees are. So then there is also kind of like a, journal. a power struggle in a sense, because or a power imbalance, because of course, if you're an author from a very established group who has a lot of funding, uh, if there is a newbie that uh, reviews your paper, is going to be impressed, right? And they even made like studies that showed that if you just do, uh, if there is like two authors, one is a very famous Nobel Prize winner, another is a, a young uh, postdoc, they write the same article, they send it to review for mm -hmm. review to referees, then the referees who see the name of the Nobel Prize winner will be will tend to give a more favorable review of the mm -hmm. paper. So there is like a bias problem there as well. Uh, and of course, if you're a big group leader, you also get more funding. So that allows you to get more postdocs. So that allows you to publish more work in a more famous journal. So it's mm -hmm. a vicious circle that repeats itself. So there's a lot of a lot of <laughs> issues. It's a systemic crisis and we need to address many things at the same time. So it's uh, it's it's not that easy, but it's it's a work in progress. And, and, and science has to has to do that. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like in that way that uh, sort of power, so to speak, in the academic sense, gets concentrated in areas where it's sort of well established, where success is mm -hmm. fairly guaranteed. You know, you get guaranteed to get a positive result, I should say. Yeah. And that you're doing sort of safe experiments, for want of a better phrase. Absolutely. And going back to the question you asked before, um, so the way I operate naturally, I'm a very curiosity driven person. So I like to explore different topics and merge them together. That's why. I, I work a bit on non-equilibrium physics, a bit on topology, a bit on quantum simulators, and I try to kind of combine things that interest me. Um, but that's not necessarily the successful way forward in research. Uh, what people try to do nowadays is to extremely specialize in a subfield and become leaders in that field and, and try to spearhead projects that are guaranteed to have favorable reviews and, and high chances of being published in high impact journals because they are the only ones who do that. So nobody else does that. So it's also hard for the reviewers to judge whether that's correct or not. And so that's also what people try to encourage young posters to do, to like specialize and become leaders mm -hmm. in, in the field. So if you want to try different things, that's not necessarily favorable for your career. Mm. But I guess to some extent from the guests that we've had on this podcast, it's actually been really nice to see the different paths that people have taken. Um, and also, I guess you don't always necessarily know what people um, how people ended up where they are absolutely to some extent so it's nice at least to know that there's you know humans behind the authors <laughs> on the paper <laughs> yeah indeed and so if we go back to your experience with research in terms of like your personal experience and your phd um as a theoretician obviously you don't have to deal with failing equipment and all this other stuff that we've yeah. covered in other episodes i have to deal with failing computers <laughs> <laughs> Computers, of course i forgot the computers are also machines <laughs> um what was the experience like in terms of your phd um was it kind of what you were expecting? 
Um, so I have to say, going into my PhD, I was expecting, maybe I was a bit naive, that I would do everything with pen and paper. <laughs> I realized, ah, you need computers. You yeah. need calculations for almost everything, actually. It's uh, in theoretical physics nowadays, it's very hard to do everything just analytically with just like pen and paper. Mm -hmm. Even if you want to, you know, work with like big matrices, um, you cannot do calculations by hands. You need a computer to do mm -hmm. something which in, in principle can be done analytically, mm -hmm. but then you have to do it numerically anyway, because otherwise it's too cumbersome. Right. So I really enjoyed actually that part of getting to enlarge my skill sets with, with computing and, mm -hmm. and, and numerics because that's something that I wasn't necessarily good at before, but I really learned how to appreciate and value that aspect. And it's also um, it's also very convenient if then one wants to move away from mm. pure science and do something more applied in industry, because uh, you know knowing how to program with Python or Fortran or Bash, it's, it's a very valuable skill to have, in, and it can be applied to many different contexts. Yeah, so... Uh... I don't think you can overest uh, overstate how much uh, computing is integral to science nowadays. In fact, just in the last couple of years, the undergraduate natural sciences course here has dropped its computer science module because computers are so embedded in every part of the course that there's no point studying them independently. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm. So uh, after your PhD, you did a postdoc before moving to the Cavendish. Uh, how did you end up choosing your next career move and how did the pandemic starting during that time affect it? Um, so... I went to Oxford for a very brief postdoc. Uh, it was supposed to be a year, but then um, I wasn't finished with my PhD. I didn't do my PhD defense uh, by the time they wanted me to start, so it ended up being just 10 months. And I started December 2019. So I moved to <laughs> Oxford in 2020, and then the pandemic hits in March. So I had to move back home and help my parents um, because Switzerland was very uh, strict with regulations at the time. Uh, over 65 um, could not leave the house, basically. So they could not go shopping. So I had to go do uh, shopping mm -hmm. for them and do some run some errands for them. And then, you know, it was very hard to go back because flights were canceled. You know, the whole world was in kind of chaos. So I ended up staying basically for the whole duration of my first postdoc in, in my, my parents' place. So I sometimes joke and I say that I did my first postdoc at the University of Canobbio, which is where my parents <laughs> are from, not at Oxford. But luckily, um, being a theoretician, one of the one of the pros is that you only need you know pen, paper, and a computer, so you can work basically anywhere. So um, I had access to supercomputing clusters, so I can run my simulations there. Uh, so I could I could work very easily from home, and it was very I was very lucky because I know we talked with Tiffany, for instance, mm -hmm. experimentalists uh, weren't allowed in the lab for quite some time, and then you know if you don't have your, your experiment running, what can you do? You have to recycle yourself in a different mm -hmm. a different project. Remote working with a computer is one thing. Taking away some very heavy and expensive lab equipment certainly isn't working. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so I really struggled. Uh, so what was it like to move back to Switzerland and spend so much time with your family again? I mean, a lot of people, particularly students and early career professionals, might resonate with this experience of suddenly moving back or finding themselves isolated from their working environment and uh, yeah. you know, back with parents after many years being away. It was obviously it was unexpected. It's I hadn't planned for it, um, but I, I kind of tried to make lemon uh, lemonade out of lemons, as they say. <laughs> um, I'm I think of myself as a naturally more introverted person, so I I in a sense thrived in an environment where it was very cozy with my parents, you know, with my family. Um, I, I felt really protected in a way because I had some 
somebody who I knew very well to go through in in the very frightening times with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm very I'm very grateful for having had that opportunity to spend more time with my parents, uh, you know, have this like additional year of like being together and like getting you know to 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 know each other better. And our relationship wasn't really much like it was a bit strained before, but being together for a year and trying to kind of live through the pandemic together, uh, it made us it made our bond stronger, which is I'm very grateful for. Um, I I'd say you know to to young people who live through through the same be brave uh be strong um try to find solace try to find connection with people that's the most important thing that i learned through the pandemic i i really kind of reconnected with some friends and with some with my parents and you know in like this dire situation um connection and and humanity in the sense of really being close to other humans is what really saves you at the end Yes, I'm sure that we can all resonate with that. And so we've got, now, now you're here. We covered your research. We covered the pandemic, um, how you ended up doing all of the things that you're doing. How did you end up on the podcast, actually? Because that's something that we haven't covered. <laughs> that maybe our listeners are like, okay, we know who this guy is, yeah. but, but why was he our host for all these episodes? Yeah. <laughs> um, so originally, uh, I have to kind of backtrack a bit. So originally, I wanted to apply for a postdoctoral fellowship that had outreach as a big component because I was interested naturally in outreach. I had already done some projects. So I thought that's that's the ideal uh, ideal fellowship that I can apply for. Uh, it's called the Stephen Hawking Fellowship. It's dedicated to the, mm-hmm. the famous uh, scientist. So I thought, you know, how can I enhance my skills and show that I really am passionate about outreach. So I thought, you know, let's try to organize a podcast. And then I uh, sent an email to Vanessa, um, mm-hmm. who was one of our co-hosts and is coming back in a couple of months. And she's also the communication officer here. Um, and so I, I pitched the idea of doing a podcast with her and she said, oh, well, actually, we're already planning a <laughs> podcast. Why don't you join us? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, yeah, we got together, we talked and, uh, we, we found that we had a lot of ideas in common. So I, I was lucky to, to join the podcast and, uh, I really had a wonderful time. It was, it really l- made me learn, um, how to interact with people, how to convey complex ideas, try to kind of reduce them to the smallest and also try to really resonate with people mm-hmm. in a in a, in a in a way that this makes communication more accessible yeah and hopefully you'll see that through the uh, audience of this uh, this podcast and they'll see it through their uh, yeah, they're listening in so just to finish this off what's next for you why are you heading to after this uh so my next chapter will be in sweden in stockholm i will join the group of emmy berryholtz um who is professor at the University of Stockholm and work on mainly non-remission quantum mechanics. It's like pivot again, <laughs> adding another piece to another my pivot. collection. <laughs> um, so basically what it is in a nutshell is a, another formulation of quantum mechanics, which includes inherently couplings with environments. So uh, processes of gains and losses. Uh, they also come naturally in photonic systems. It's a, it's a different, ways, uh, different way of describing quantum mechanics um, for open systems, which is something I've already worked here in, uh, in Cambridge. We, we talked about my, my work on uh, finite temperature topology, so it relates to that. So it's another fuzzy fringe of science that you found that uh, you can explore and uh, investigate. Yeah, I guess um, a, a metaphor that I really like uh, about research, especially for PhDs, uh, if you're listening, <laughs> 
uh, sometimes you think, oh, what am I doing? Like my work is so like minuscule compared to like the, you know, the big science that is advertised. You have to think of research as kind of like a circle and the knowledge that comes from research is expanding this circle, make it like wider. So what you're doing as a PhD or even like afterwards as a postdoc, as a researcher is making like a tiny dent at the very boundary of that circle to make it a bit wider, a bit, a bit more extended. And then you've made this dent and then what people do, they come and they enlarge this dent. They work, uh, they, they work based on what you've discovered. And then, you know, in five years, 10 years time, that dent will enlarge, enlarge, enlarge until the whole um, peri perimeter of the circle will be slightly wider. And then by that process, the whole knowledge of mankind will be, be more enlarged. So I think that's, uh, that's a nice metaphor to, mm -hmm. to, to say what, what research is all about, in my views. Definitely. And I think it's important to remember all the little bits of work that go on, all the sort of under-celebrated scientists. Absolutely. It takes a village. Indeed. And people getting negative results as well. I think that's a big thing in science, that yeah. positive results are the only ones people ever read about. So, uh, well, thank you very much, Paolo. It's been a pleasure working with you on the podcast. It's been great to interview you today. Uh, hopefully it's been uh, interesting for you as well. And uh... Yeah, thank you very much. It's been an amazing opportunity and an amazing adventure. And uh, yeah, thank you also to all the listeners who tuned in every month and listen to our podcast and maybe we'll see we'll hear each other again <laughs> in the future okay, yeah. yes well uh, thank you to our guest and co-host dr paolo molignini and to our producer chris for this episode if you want to learn more about what's been discussed in this episode or want to join or study with us at the cavendish please go to phi phy.cam.ac.uk forward slash podcast uh, thank you for listening to People Doing Physics. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or leave us a review. We would love you to put your questions to our team of physicists, so send us your most pressing ones on Twitter using the hashtag, hashtag PeopleDoingPhysics. You can also email us at podcast at phy.cam.ac.uk. We'll be back next month. Bye. Bye. Bye.